Um, welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to Susanna. Um, and before we start, let me give a short introduction so you get to know her a little bit and um, we'll go from there. So um, Susanna Rafelski, uh, she is the Deputy Director at the Allen Institute for Cell Science and um, she started this position in 2020. And uh, before that, <clears throat> she um, was the assistant professor in the Department of Developmental and Cell Biology um, and the Department of Biomedical Engineering um, and the Center for Complex Biological Systems at UC Irvine. And um, she actually started um, imaging live cells um, and um, intracellular dynamics in 3D when she was 17. And I have questions about that after this. So um, she started really early on in life to, um, um, yeah, to work in science basically. And uh, she did her bachelor's in biochemistry and molecular um, biology and cellular biology um, with, an, with also an emphasis in mathematics at the University of Arizona. And then she completed her PhD in biochemistry at Stanford University, where she then did a postdoc at the uh, Center for Cell Dynamics um, at the Friday Harbor Labs, University of Washington. And that's where she learned computational modeling approaches. And um, it will be really interesting to uh, learn more about your path, Susanna, uh, that led you to start already with 17 to work in this field, basically. So, so how did you, how did you get this, um, yeah, this, this possibility or this opportunity to, to do that with 17. And uh, yeah, I'm curious to learn more. Thank you. Thank you, Katerina. Um, and it's so cool that you're calling me Susanne, which is my, my German name for, for all the English speakers. I go by Susan generally, but it's actually quite a treat. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I, uh, I have always wanted to do research. And my little story that I like to share is that um, in the summer when I was seven, this will get to you a question about 17. In the summer when I was seven, my mom was always glued to her computer screen and her work. And my little brother and I, we, we couldn't get her attention unless we like wrote things on a piece of paper and placed them between her and her computer monitor. And so I kept asking her, what is so important that you're you know, ignoring us and working all the time? And she said she was doing research. And I was like, well, what's research? And so she said, well, it's when we discover something no one has ever known before. And that to me, that was my hook. How could she mean that no one knew? We had so many books and so many libraries and, you know, adults know everything. How could we not know everything yet? And so to me, that really, you know, sounded like a good reason for her to ignore us and stare at the computer. And um, I realized that I also wanted to, you know, discover things that nobody knew. And uh, it turned out that the reason she was doing that is that she was working to finish her PhD in theoretical physics um, at a time when it was still pretty rare for women to do that very much in that field. And she had paused because she had my brother and me, and now she was trying to finish it all up. And so um, she was quite the inspiration <laughs> for, 
before that. But my love was was with with um, understanding life. And when I first learned about the cell and the complexities of everything inside the cell and DNA and the genetic code and how, you know, we come to be that I wanted to do. So I got very lucky. I started a little bit early at 16. And so I ended up in a lab right away um, learning how to do molecular biology. And that lab was one of the early labs that had um, confocal microscopes. And so I started imaging, you know, plant cells and nuclei labeled with GFP and plant cells in flea D and in time back when I was 17. Um, and I didn't know at the time that that was going to be such a, you know, fun foundational way that I look at cells. Um, so I, I, you know, I dabbled in other ways of doing biology, but apparently I've come right back to where I started. Well, that's such a beautiful story. I, I really love that story. And I feel for your mother because I had my first son when I was 18 and I still had to study a lot. Yeah. <laughs> my PhD and I brought them to the lab all the time actually all my kids and they did a lot of stuff around the lab just to keep them doing something like setting up behavior things and anyways right right I love that story because it's kind of um yeah close close to me somehow and it's so beautiful to learn that you you got encouraged by that and and it um it's, you know inspired you to to do the work you do now it's and your your mother must be very happy about that must be really yeah she unfortunately passed away when i was 20 so um but she is probably still very happy about it <laughs> somewhere yeah. <laughs> yeah um yeah i'm sorry about that but i i think you carried her on so that's very beautiful to hear and um yeah and then from this early discoveries and and curiosity if you could bring us to where you are now and the work you did where you basically combine combined your um mathematical skills and um, imaging skills to this whole new level of um, understanding of biology and life and the cell um, do you yeah if you could bring us there and what led you to do that and 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 how this project came about thank you yes that would be awesome so from 17 all the way to now fast forward <laughs> um, I think I am personally very, very fascinated with patterns and patterns in space and time. And so my my little space that I've sort of dedicated my time to wanting to understand patterns is the inside of the cell. I find the patterns of how cells form tissues and the you know the uh, changes in morphology and the changes in behavior incredibly fascinating. And I think that in the same way that um, we study morphogenesis of cells and tissues, we also need to study the morphogenesis inside the cells of the structures and how they come together to create cells and how a cell combines all of its, you know, molecular uh, components in a moment in time to generate its organization, to generate its function and behavior and to interact with its environment. And so that, that is really a really big goal of my own and I got very lucky when I was an assistant professor at UC Irvine studying these questions in uh, the budding yeast model system uh, in mitochondria as a model system for a structure to study morphogenesis, that this amazing institute was being founded by uh, Paul Allen 
um, as part of the Allen Institute, where really his commitment was and his desire was for us to figure out and understand the operating system of the cell. And so he brought in um, a lot of experts to talk through what type of model system to use, what types of approaches to use, and then hired our first uh, executive director, Rick Horwitz, to really start this institute off. And somehow, somewhere in my little uh, assistant professor life that I was leading very happily at Irvine, I got very lucky to meet Rick and to have uh, Rick uh, invite me uh, to join as a director of one of the um, departments at the Institute, which was assay development, image-based assay development. And so the idea was that uh, there's so much information that is uh, contained in what cells are doing in space and time, and the way we access that is through images, that we wanted to really take a, a very deep dive into the inside of the cell in a large scale through a lot of you know, image collection and analysis to see what we could learn. Um, and so the project was you know, initially uh, partly quite exploratory and partly quite technical. And it started with the beginning of the Institute. This, this paper is sort of representing you know, seven years of work by the, the whole Institute, starting with just a few people, ending now with about 70 people. I'll tell you guys that in the slides. And, um, and I'm just you know, honored and privileged to get to be the person who gets to you know, show off everything that everyone did at the Institute um, and that is compiled in this paper. One of the, the most important sort of things that leads us to this study is our desire to study cells with microscopes in a way that we can look at as normal cells as possible and have access to them. So we chose not to go into one particular organism um, for you know, great impact. Hopefully in the future, we chose to focus on the human-induced pluripotent stem cell as our model system. Our organism, I guess, would be the human, <laughs> but our um, stem cells, because they are not cells that are transformed or altered in any way, really represent the best that we can, you know, a normal cell. And so we really wanted to understand and look at how cells are organized and what information we can pull out of that um, in the context of normal cells. And so I think that that really is a basis for, for the study and for the Institute and for where we're heading from here. So the, the paper is a, a snapshot of one period in time of the Allen Institute for Cell Science. And, and now we're moving on to, to the next things. Well, I'm so glad you met and uh, that you um, that that led to you doing this wonderful work and having this position. Um, so I, um, I'm really glad <laughs> and we are all very lucky that this happened because, um, yeah, we, I think we will all uh, very much benefit from your work and um, so it's really wonderful to hear that story. I, I to be honest, these rooms <laughs> and these interviews make me all the time very hopeful <laughs> that things can work out really well. And uh, <laughs> to this wonderful work, um, there there is hope. <laughs> so, um, I certainly yeah. think so. I, I think that hopefully everyone listening also has their personal stories of just a lot of luck and a lot of you know. Um, good people in your life that that you know let you do really good work. Yeah, I agree. There is, and I think in most you know outlets of anything information, it's most about the negative things. So I'm really glad. Uh, yeah, we got to hear your story, um, uh, which is kind of uh, very uh, wonderful. So um, yeah, the stage is yours. 
for everyone. The presentation is pinned on top of the room. Please feel free to access it while Susanna is talking. And uh, yeah, we are all very curious to hear your story. Thank you. Thank you so much, Katerina. Okay, so if you guys go to the slides, um, this was sort of fun for me because I use a lot of animation in my slides. And so um, there will be many slides. I put slide numbers so I can tell you guys what slide we're on. Um, and so I will try to keep you moving through my slides <laughs> together with me um, in, a, in a good way. So I'm at the title slide um, and I'm gonna tell you guys about uh, the study that we call Integrated Intercellular Organization and its variation in human iPS cells. Um, and now on slide two, I just wanted to start um, with two slides thanking the people that did this work. And so uh, the Allen Institute for Cell Science is part of the larger Allen Institute um, our maiden values are that we really cherish team science, open science, and our community engagement. And so we all work together in an interdisciplinary way. We don't have individual PI groups. We have really main projects that everyone participates in. We've been going for about seven years. We are now about 70 people. And then when you go to slide three, you can see us during the COVID lockdown times, all still continuing to do our team science over Zoom as much as we could while our experimentalists um, asked everyone to stay home so that they had more space in the lab. <laughs> um, and I really wanted to thank so all the people um, over the years that have been at the Institute, especially the 84 co-authors of this particular study that just came out um, in January. And um, we are 84 co-authors because we really wanted to include and give proper um, recognition for all of the people, all the way from our experimentalists who generated the cell lines to our software engineers who generated the infrastructure we needed to be able to manage these large amounts of data. So um, it's actually very much a privilege to have led the, that paper and, and the study. Slide four. So the um, scientific mission of the Allen Institute for Cell Science um, at the sort of highest level is that we would like to understand how cells organize themselves and change. And what we mean is that we know that um, sort of the basis of understanding cells, or we, I guess we hypothesize strongly, we believe strongly, is the interactions between cell organization, cell behavior, and cell identity, and how those interact dynamically with each other. And we believe that if we understood those interactions and we had ways of accessing those interactions, we could look, you know, with quotation marks around the word look at a cell, we would know what it is doing at that moment in time, but also what it did to get there and perhaps also predict what it will do in the future. Slide five. The um, cell is organized and, and uh, integrates all of its myriad millions of intercellular processes over four orders of magnitude in space and in time. Here I'm showing in space, going from genes all the way to the cell level phenotype. And so we at the Institute, slide six, we really focus in on um, the, inter, the, the organizational level of intercellular structures and organelles to reduce the dimensional complexity in a way that we hope we could maybe capture and think about and humanly interpret all of the things that say 30 to 50 structures are doing instead of thousands and thousands of individual proteins. And so that's one of our sort of hallmarks of what we do at the Institute. The other hallmarks are listed on the right side we really want to understand the cell as a whole. We don't want to just look at one particular part of the cell or one set of structures within the cell, but as many as possible together. We really wanted to um, invest in normal. We believe that you really have to understand normal to understand abnormal. And that means that we work in these human-induced pluripotent stem cells. 
which are much harder to work with. And we also really wanted to be able to image cells live, which means that our tagging strategies involve things like adding GFP to proteins instead of using antibodies so that we could then visualize cells in time. We're also very committed to 3D. So I don't mean the 3D that is one cell above another in tissues. That's also a very important 3D, but I just mean even if you have a cell on a plate or dish, the 3D that is that the top and bottom of the cell are not identical. And we also wanted to do everything in a quantitative way. So we really set ourselves up to quite a big challenge that takes a while to do. Um, also means that when you do it, your impact is, is quite exciting. We know that we can't understand cells just by doing this. We know that there's so much other information contained in cells and that in order to understand the cells, we would want to integrate the information we can get from our images with other data types. For example, expression signatures, protein states such as signaling and chromatin organization. So I'm going to go to slide seven here and say that um, the, we and others in our field are really excited that this type of single cell imaging and analysis is sort of the next step in the post-genomic era. But we have this very grand challenge and, and this um, image you're seeing, normally the cells spin around in 3D and it's unfortunately a movie that doesn't play on Google Slides, but it's very beautiful. And it demonstrates really that you know it's a challenge to figure out how to compare in a quantitative way the shapes and positions and changes of them over time for all of these different types of 3D cellular structures in some sort of comprehensible and generalizable manner. And yet, if we want to take the information stored in the organization of cells and integrate this with other data types, we have to have numbers to describe that organization or else we can't you know, bring that part of cell biology you know, to the same level that, for example, all the amazing, you know, single cell RNA-seq type data is at. We really need to develop a way to do, you know, analysis and statistics on cell organization. So slide eight. The really cool thing is that this institute, the whole Allen Institute, is very dedicated to um, empowering the community. And so as part of our um, mission, we have a part of it that is to develop and democratize tools to discover new biology together as a community. And so we are hoping to do all of this development and science in a way that we can then also share the approaches, the tools, and the methods um, for everyone to be able to participate in this type of work. Slide nine. So. Um, now moving to the study, moving from the bigger introduction to how, how, how that leads to this particular paper. If we consider cell organization to be how all of a cell's components are arranged within it, and if we consider our components that we're focusing on to be these intracellular structures and organelles that will hopefully lead us towards interpretable and testable rules of cell organization, then um, what we need to do is think about how would we actually measure organization, how do we characterize it, how do we um, uh, quantify it. And to do that, we start to realize that each of these components that we're studying, these structures and organelles, they have multiple aspects to them that would need to be measured so that we can find the metrics that describe organization. So on the right, you can see, you know, any structure would have a size or a number, a shape, a location, the particular interactions it does with other structures, and what it does in time, the dynamics. So slide uh, 10. But very importantly, we need to have measurements that are not just, say, the average shape of a structure, but also really embrace the variation in the organization. And this is so important because um, 
you could imagine that if you want to understand what is normal, normal is not one average, but normal is a population. Normal is the variation in that population. An abnormal could be a phenotype that doesn't actually change the, the mean, but actually just changes how the variation is changed. And so we really need to be able to embrace the variation that we see from cell to cell. And all of you who are listening who've looked at cells know how, how important that is. Slide uh, 11. So in this study, we did not look at all aspects of organization of these structures. We did, however, look at the size and number, the location, the interactions, and very importantly, the mean and variation. And together, we show that if we consider these aspects of organization and define them as what we call integrated intercellular organization in these human iPS cells, we find that that's defined by distinct and separable aspects representing the mean and variation. And I will take you through what these separable aspects are. I won't talk much about size and number, but that's in the paper. I will focus on location and interactions and this difference between mean and variation. So um, slide 12 is sort of the beginning of an overview uh, figure. That's the very last figure in the supplemental of the paper. Any of you who actually want to look at the paper, I recommend that figure as a good place to start, even though it's the very last figure. Um, and really, all of this starts by saying, hey, this paper is about how we generated a resource data set that others can access in many different ways. And this particular data set, we call it the WTC11. That's the background of a uh, uh, strain of our HIPSCs, single cell image data set V1. And we called it V1 because there will be many versions as we extend this data set. It's about 200,000 cells, and it's across uh, 25 cellular structures. But to generate this data set, I would say, you know, a good chunk of those seven years came into how we actually do that. And that's because if you go to slide 13, we actually had quite a few challenges, technical challenges. At the time that we started doing this, um, the uh, endogenous tagging via CRISPR and Cas9 was relatively new and was certainly not done at scale in uh, stem cells. And we wanted to be able to really create clonal uh, cell lines that were very, very high quality which we call our Allen cell collection that then are released and, and available to uh, the community, which we have done. Then we had to figure out how to image these cells uh, in a proper way that kept them alive <laughs> and captured all of the details we needed to in three dimensions. And so we spent quite a lot of time optimizing an imaging pipeline and automated workflows. And then we had these amazing images of cells, um, but we had to figure out how to pull out computationally individual cells from a mass of cells that like to go together in colonies. And so we developed the Allen cell and structure segmenter and a couple of um, both classic and deep learning approaches to try to really do this at scale and high accuracy. And then if you go to slide 14, that meant, unfortunately, this also was a movie that should play, but you can get the idea. It meant that now we could actually have 200,000 individual cells um, to look at. So what do these cells have? in them, what are we doing with this data set? So if you go to slide 15, this is sort of an overview of, of how we generate that data. On the right, you can see a colony of HIPS cells grown on metagel, and they like to form these colonies. They need their neighbors to be happy. Um, and we image these cells mostly in the center of these colonies, but also at the edge, which will be very important later in the talk. And we also um, had these cells that were edited to have one protein endogenously tagged with GFP to label one single cell structure in each of these cell lines. And we have on the left, the 25 different cellular structures in the 25 cell lines that we then imaged in this way. We also had a dye for the DNA and a dye for the cell membrane, which is actually trickier than it sounds, especially when you have tightly packed cells. 
these uh, human-induced pluripotent stem cells, as I mentioned, are such a great system because they're as normal as you can get in a tissue culture system. They're an early embryonic cell state. They're naturally immortal, and they're karyotypically normal. And then these cell lines, we did extensive quality control. So again, our input um, for our data set was as much normal cells as possible. So if you go to slide 16, and I take a sip of my tea here, This is great. We now had 200,000 cells and gorgeous images of them. And what do we do now? I mean, that's more cells than even someone who's been staring at cells since they were 17 could deal with. <laughs> um, and so we, we really wanted to think of a way, a framework to, to explore the variation of the organization in these cells and the variation of the cells themselves. And so we created two conceptual, we call them coordinate systems. One is the shape of individual cells. Uh, with respect to the variations in shape of the whole population in what we call the 3D cell and nuclear shape space. And the second is um, to try to create um, very uh, consistent map points, regardless of cell shape, in the inside of the cells so that we could um, look at the location of every subcellular structure via what we call the parameterized intercellular location representation, or pillar. Um, and so I'm going to tell you what those two coordinate systems are and how we use them. On slide 17, um, the first thing we did is we had to um, align our cells in some way so that we were comparing them in a similar orientation. And for our cells, we just used the long axis of the cell. And we definitely did not change the z-axis because these are epithelial-like cells and they have an apical basal polarity. And then what we wanted to do is to find descriptors of cell shape. And so we used something called uh, spherical harmonic expansion. The spherical harmonic expansion is similar to a Fourier expansion, but now in 3D. And so as you increase the number of coefficients, um, you can uh, describe the shape of a particular, say in this case, nucleus and or cell, uh, more or less accurately, depending on how many numbers you use to describe it. And so we use 289 spherical harmonic coefficients for each the cell and the nucleus. And if you go to slide 18, and that meant that we could um, also use those numbers to reconstruct what that shape would be. So this is a really important feature of our framework, that it's generative, which means that whatever we do with our numbers, we could recreate what that means for the cell shape and later also for the insides of the cell so that experimental scientists who stare at images the whole time could biologically validate the computational results that we got. And that's incredibly powerful. As one of the scientists who spend a lot of time looking at our results and, and digging into that, I can tell you that the power of this generative uh, concept is really important. So we took all of these numbers and we said, well, how do we deal with those? And we did something called a principal component analysis, which reduces the dimensionality of these 578 or whatever numbers down to eight, eight modes of um, you know, variation that represent uh, the, these shapes. And these are orthogonal modes, and here they're called PCs, and in a moment we'll call them shape modes. So if you go to slide 19 and you're still hanging on here with me, <laughs> um, the really cool thing is that um, you can move around in that eight dimensional shape space any way you like. And so on the bottom here, we're showing you that one can go to the center of that shape space. You can regenerate what that shape would be based on the numbers. And basically on the right side, you can see in a 3D representation and then also three 2D representations, what the mean cell shape is for our HIPSCs. So these 2D representations are really important because that's what we'll be showing a lot. There's a top view, you know, if you slice through the center, but looking down, there's a side view if you slice through the center, but look from the side. And of course, there's a shorter side view as well. 
So if you go to slide 20, this is where like all of the understanding of the shape sort of comes in. Cells can vary all sorts of ways in, in, in their shape. And yet we can start understanding from uh, biology what the source of that variation is. So for example, if you guys look at the one that's circled on the slide, shape mode two, this is the volume of the cell and it represents, of course, the cell cycle. Cells grow before they divide again. And so a cell can be more or less big, even if they change in these other aspects of shape, and we can, we can understand that. If you go to slide 21, you can see that the mode of shape that actually had the most variation in our 200,000 cells was height. And, and this is because these cells grow in colonies, and depending on how packed the colonies are, they actually change their height. And we emit so many colonies and so many cells over three years that actually the amount that height varied in our cells was more than the amount that volume varied. If you go to slide 22, what you'll see is all sorts of other ways that cells can change shape. They can tilt more or less. They can be more or less elongated. They can have more or less of a pear shape. And the really cool thing is that most of these modes, turns out if you, you take movies, these are really coming from pretty fast dynamics of the cells pushing and pulling on each other within the colony. And so they're representing the um, way that shape is constrained by the neighbors, by the cell's neighbors, basically. So we had a way now to quantitatively describe for any cell where it lives in this eight-dimensional shape space. How tall is it? How large is it? How tilted is it? How bean-shaped is it? And that means that we could identify cells that are similar to each other. So, but now we needed to figure out how to do something similar inside the cell. So if you go to slide 23, basically the idea is we wanted to be able to move through the inside, the three-dimensional space inside the cell in some consistent manner and track whether there is or isn't, you know, a structure in a certain location. And so to do that, we'll go to slide 24 and see if I can walk you guys through this. Here we have our, on the left, our eight-dimensional shape space, and we've selected one particular cell. This particular cell has, by chance, the Golgi tag. And you're not seeing the protein intensities of the protein that represents the Golgi, but you're seeing our segmentation of the Golgi that says present or absent at a particular location. The really cool thing about the spherical harmonics and um, that our first author really you know, took advantage of and worked up is that if you take the spherical harmonics that describe the surface of the nucleus and the surface of the cell and interpolate them, you get beautiful 3D concentric shells that sort of morph from the shape of the nucleus towards the shape of the cell. And then we can do the same thing inside the nucleus from the center of the nucleus to the boundary of the nucleus. And then we can take every single position um, and we can just record presence or absence of a structure. So under the pillar, what you can see is the y-axis is telling us how far we are from the center of the cell. And the x-axis is sort of a concentric shell, you know, going around sort of in 3D marking whether you do or don't have structure there. And so we get these pillars, these sort of fingerprints within a cell of the location of a particular structure. And at the bottom, you can see one for the histones inside the nucleus, which, you know, mostly stay on the low part of the y-axis, or for the mitochondria in the cell, which mostly stay on the large part of the y-axis because they're further away from the center of the cell. On slide 25, what we can do is we could take lots and lots of individual pillars for um, other cells with Golgi tagged. And this is where the shape space is so important because we could say, let's just do it for cells that are similar in shape. Let's not go completely crazy and do this for cells with very different shape. So we 
took all the cells within a certain sphere in this eight-dimensional space. We call it the eight-dimensional sphere, which is sort of a fun thing to think about for those of you who like to think abstractly. And we said, let's take all the Golgi cells and let's average all the pillars. And so we get on the very light a picture of the average pillar, which actually is the relative likelihood of whether a structure is or is not in that particular location within a cell. And so when you go to slide 26, this is where things get really cool. These pillars are, are you know, locations in certain map points. And we can now take, say, the center of whichever cells we averaged, in this case, the center of the eight-dimensional sphere, recreate the average shape, recreate those map points, and bring the average map of the location into the average shape of the cell. And so these we call average morphed cells. And here in the bottom, you can see the average morphed cell um, for the Golgi. And you can see um, a top view and a side view. And if you look at the top view and you say, well, I don't see any Golgi there, that's light. That's because it's through the center of the cell and the Golgi like to live at the top of the cell. So the side view is more useful here. So on, on slide 27, you, know, you can start to see all the action take place um, because you can now see individual cell examples. And if you were to average a whole bunch of those cells you know, in the sort of center of the shape space, for each one of those structures, you can see the average morphed cell example on the right side. And so the, the top of each of those squares is that top view and the side is the side view. And you can start seeing the basically you know, probability maps of where the structure would be in the cell. So that's pretty cool. So what do we do with that? Well, the other really, I mean, to me and to all of us, cool thing is these are all in the same cell shape. So if you go to slide 28, it means that we can now computationally put all of that together. And so here you're sh I'm showing you what that looks like for 17 of the 25 structures, because even our amazing visualization expert, when he tried to put the full 25 structures in, you start to not see very much. So, you know, this, this, is, <laughs> this is starting to be difficult to visualize, which is another reason why we really, really need, you know, good numbers to describe this as well. So if you go to slide 29, this is where the challenge starts. So now we have this beautiful way of computationally integrating all of the structures, of finding cells that are similar to each other, of mapping the points. So now what? Well, for each individual structure on the left, we have the average location in the cell and the likelihood that it's there. But now we can think about all pairs of structures and we can actually calculate a similarity in that average location. And the way we do that is that you would take, for example, the average pillar of one structure and you would calculate the Pearson correlation with the average pillar of another structure. And then if you go to slide 29, you would do that for all structures versus all structures. And this is now a heat map that tells you the similarity and location of any two structures. And here we've just done a hierarchical clustering, which in a beautiful way starts to show the compartmentalization of the cell as we as cell biologists understand it, but this is completely data-driven and computationally generated. And so this is really the average pairwise spatial interaction map of cellular structures. On slide 31, we can say, okay, that's great. Now we have a way of thinking about the average location for an individual structure and the average location similarity for pairs of structures. We go to slide 32. But what we really want is to get at that variation as well. And so for individual structures, we uh, created a measurement which we call the stereotypy. Um, and the stereotypy here is sort of an example. If you take individual cells, and you compare how similar location of the same structure is, but in many different cells, uh, you can have either a high stereotypy or you know, a high sort of similarity or a low stereotypy. 
And if you do that now, uh, go to slide 33, also for um, pairs of structures, you can now do the same to say uh, the, the equivalent, which we call the concordance, which is from individual cell to another individual cell, whether you have high concordance or low concordance. So those are just the concepts of those measurements. And if you go now to slide 34, we'll show you how that turns into something that we can do statistics on. So we'll take some cell that happens to have Golgi labeled and some other cell that happens to have mitochondria labeled. And if you go to slide 35 now, we take those two pillars and we, for individual cells, two individual cells, and we do their correlation value. And that becomes one point on this Golgi mitochondria matrix. And we mark the correlation value. Now you go to slide 36 and you take that little block that I showed you and you put it in the context of all cells, regardless of what structure they have. In this case, all the cells in the eight dimensional sphere, um, which uh, now I forget how many it is, but you can see that scale bar, that's a thousand cells. So it's you know, many, many thousands of cells on the X and the Y axis. And you can start getting these heat maps and you can start seeing sort of by the, the um, colors of these heat maps that the concordance and the stereotypy, you know, are very um, different depending on the combinations. So if you go to slide 37, here's where all of it sort of comes together. You can take a particular block and you can get the mean of that. And that tells you the concordance value for that combination of structures. And if you go down one more to slide 38, the diagonal is the stereotypy because it's saying for every structure against itself, all cells against each other, how similar generally are their locations versus not? And the stereotypy, um, I put four arrows to show you guys the two structures that have the highest stereotypy and the lowest stereotypy, or some of the highest and lowest, which are the nucleoli um, versus the um, endosomes and peroxisomes. You can start ranking sort of how similar in location are individual structures from cell to cell, and you can start seeing these patterns. And most importantly, you can have a number. This is important because now you can compare heat maps. So if you go to slide 39, you can say, okay, the first thing we could do is take our really big data set, which is mostly cells in interphase. We do have some cells in mitosis, but that's a very small percentage. And just say, if we go along these shape modes and we look at this sort of organizational profile of the cells, of the mean locations and variations, um, do we see differences? And so here we're going across uh, the shape mode that is height. And you can see that all of these heat maps, when you do all cells by all cells, looks quite similar. And the reason they're different sizes is that you have different number of cells in each of these shape bins. And if you go to slide 40, at the bottom you can see, you can also compare um, now in this case, the concordance map. So the very one on the left, there's a bottom triangle and a top triangle that are showing you the flattest versus the tallest cells. And then we do that for all the shape modes. And if you look at the paper carefully and you look at the slide, what the first thing we learned was that actually the organization is incredibly robust across shape, more so than we perhaps expected. So on slide 41, where I've gotten you guys so far, and now more fun continues, <laughs> is that we have measurements for the average location and its variation for individual and pairs of structures. And because of that, we can now use these heat maps to calculate, say, difference heat maps, and we can quantify differences between subpopulations. But for that average location, that picture, that beautiful integrated cell, we're not measuring anything yet. We're just saying, here it is, here's the map. So how can we maybe measure a change in average location? 
So if we go to slide 42, I'm going to show you how we do that. Um, and here we're going to now focus on two subpopulations within our, you know, our data set. Most of our cells are coming from center of colonies, and some of our cells are coming from edges of colonies. And colony edge cells are different uh, biologically. They have a different environment. They lack the cell-cell junctions at the periphery of the colony all around them. They're not surrounded by cells in all directions. You go to slide 43. And they face towards the edge of a colony. And so we are aligned all of these cells so that the positive x-axis is always the outside of the colony. So keep that in mind. And so now we can say, OK, how would we take advantage of all of the stuff we've built to compare the location of structures um, in these edge cells. So a perturbed, or in this case, it's a normal, but you know, a different condition of cell compared to the, the, the rest of the population. So on slide 44, we can start by saying, well, let's calculate the average shape, right? And so here you see a picture of the edge cells compared to all cells. And you can see they're sort of wedge-shaped and you know, that sort of makes sense towards the outside of the colony, maybe something that those of us who look at cells a lot would expect. We go to slide 45. The problem is that now we have very different shapes. And so if we wanted to start comparing the maps of the location of structures, I'm sorry that the structures are not the same colors in these two examples, but it really you know, highlights this problem that how do we compare organization and measure it when um, the edge cells have a different shape? The solution, if you go to 46, is that we have thousands and thousands of cells that are a normal baseline data set. Many, most of these are also non-edge cells. And so what we can do is we can create a shape match data set to compare edge cells with non-edge cells that are of the same shape. So we have our shape space, our eight-dimensional shape space. And in red, you can see all a bunch of edge cells. And then circled in black, you can, you know, gray with a black circle, you can see the non-edge cell that is the closest to the edge cell in this eight-dimensional shape space. So not in the colony, but in like shape. What is the most similar shaped cell that is not an edge cell to an edge cell? If you go to slide 47, what we can do now is just take those cells and create their own shape space. And we can see that the average shape of this combined shape space is basically the same as the edge cell alone. Right? So we've basically succeeded in picking non-edge cells that are shaped like the edge cells and basically getting rid of all the variation between the two populations in the context of cell shape. And so if you look at the bottom, you can now see the average map of mitochondria in non-edge versus edge cells. And so if you look closely, you can see that there's more mitochondria towards that right side, which is the outside of the colony, in the edge cells than the non-edge cells. And so that's fine. That's still just a map. But it is a map at least you can compare by eye, you know, qualitatively. But now we want to compare it quantitatively. So on slide 48, um, what we did is we take all the pillars of the mitochondria and we do a PCA on those themselves. So the pillars are like 500,000 dimensions, and we bring those down to 32. And then we do something called a linear discriminant axis, uh, sorry, linear discriminant analysis to define the axis of greatest separation between the two populations. This is a statistical thing. If you have two populations and they're in a multidimensional space, you can identify the axis that best separates them out. And so this, this purple, this fat purple line, that's our special axis. And so the histogram on the top is basically saying every single cell in this population can now be placed along this axis. And you can see where the means are. So you can see that the mean edge cell has you know, a different location than the mean non-edge cell. But every single cell can be looked at as well, the real cell. So that's what you see below. And you can see that pattern. You can see that the edge cells tend to have more mitochondria towards that right side of the cell. So cell biologists, we can go and actually look at the data as much as we like. 
the really cool thing happens on slide 49. Remember that this is also generative. So we can say, okay, this is the, this is the axis that describes the pillar. So let's reconstruct the pillar inside the shape. And now we can see what that phenotype is. This axis defines how leftward versus rightward the polarity of the mitochondria is, and the non-edge cells are more to the left and the edge cells are more to the right. And now we can ascribe numbers to it and we can understand that phenotype. Okay, on slide 50, you can see that for a bunch of other structures. Um, and for all the structures except the one in the bottom right, you should notice that there is sort of a phenotype that is moving towards the outside of the colony. Um, and so we can say that the average location of some of these cytoskeletal and major organelles are really polarized towards the colony periphery and edge cells compared to non-edge cells of the same shape. And a sanity check for us was actually the one on the bottom right, which is the adherence junctions, which are cell-cell junctions. And those should not be on the outside of the colony. And you can see that there's a rearward uh, movement in the context of that phenotype. So um, this was really exciting to us because it's really a way to quantify an average location. And that is the last thing we needed to be able to quantify all these different aspects of cell organization um, in our population. So if you go to slide, oops, I went backwards, slide 51. Here, if you squint, you will see that I'm actually flipping between edge cells and non-edge cells. And I'm showing you the heat map of concordance, right? So these cells have the same shape. I just showed you that the location does change quantitatively and qualitatively. But the stereotypy and the concordance, which represent the interactions of pairs of structures and the variations of individual and pairs of structures, barely change at all. And so we're going to call that just shorthand, call that the wiring of the structures. Right? So in, in the edge cells, the location can change, but that wiring, those interactions, and the variation does not. And you say, well, maybe that's you know, your methodology. Maybe there's a problem. But if you go to slide 52, what you'll see is that now if you use mitosis, which is another part of the paper, early stages of mitosis, you can see that a ton can change in these measurements. Right? The fact that in the edge cells it's not changing much is a result. And then in mitosis, all sorts of crazy stuff happens, as you would expect, because the cells be organized. So to summarize what this all is in my last couple of slides, so we can all chat a little bit more, on slide 53, um, basically uh, for cells in interphase, which is the most of our cells, um, we found that there's very little change between cells in the um, variability and the average location, sorry, the variability of individual structures and the average location and variability of pairs of structures. We could not look at how the average location changes in cells of different shape that we have not yet solved <laughs> quantitatively. We can look qualitatively. Um, but for colony edge cells, uh, we could still show uh, now where we can control the shape of the cell, we can look inside and we can show that there is a change in the average location of many of the structures, but you can see the wiring, these other three X's don't change. And if you go to slide 54, and if you go look at the paper more deeply, um, what we see when we look at mitosis is that all of these things can change. But when they change and whether they change depends on the particular structure. As you would expect in mitosis, not all structures change and they all change maybe at different times. So this bottom thing where I say most often, but not always, that's my attempt at sort of saying, because we had all of these different ways that, that, that things could change in these examples, what we found is that we never saw a change in, in everything you know, to the right of average location unless we also saw a change in average location. 
so far with, with the examples we've chosen. And, you know, we'll see if that holds true. But then we also found that most often we would not see a change in uh, the locations of pairs of structures or their variability unless we also first saw a change in at least one of the structures individually. So that's why I have the one, two, and three. But the really cool thing, and you have to leave the paper for that, but I can also talk about it, is that's not always true. So there's an exception, microtubules and, um, and DNA and mitosis do have some funny ways that you can change concordance without changing stereotypy and vice versa. It's complicated. But what it tells us is that all of these ways of measuring parts of cell organization are distinct and need to be explored further. We've only done it in the context of these cells, but we've hopefully generated a framework, um, if you go to slide 55, that allows others to do it as well. So on the left, um, this is really important. The conceptual aspect of these coordinate systems, the application to um, you know, analyzing cell organization, this is generalizable and extensible. All of you guys listening can think about, you know, how would I, is it useful for me if I could find cells of similar shapes? Is it useful for me if I could map the insides of the cell? What would I do with the numbers I would get, like stereotypy and concordance? What would I compare? You know, what would I do? But the exact implementations, so on the right side of the words on the right, of this framework are modular meaning that they really depend on your application. If you're using 2D images, spherical harmonics aren't going to work. If you have really complex cell shapes, you probably need some other type of shape representation. If you're interested in protein distributions and not the structures like we are, you may need a little bit different math. But either way, the concept's going to be the same. And the specific application, we all together as a community have to start to work up. On slide 56, I just want to say that I spend all my time talking about location and interactions, but there's, of course, shape and dynamics. And so we're trying to build similar frameworks at the Institute that are analysis frameworks for shape trajectories, where we also try to find measurements and ways of describing and embracing the mean and variation. Now, in this case, we're starting with the nucleus because it's most straightforward, but also other structures in the cell. So stay tuned um, for that because we're really excited about that. And the last slide before my last slide, slide 57, is just to say so much of what we do, we have made as accessible as we can at the moment. We're going to continue making it better. And you can find all of that at our portal, which is alansall.org. Um, so please check that out. And then on the very last slide, slide 58, I just want to thank everyone again, um, including uh, Paul Allen for his vision, encouragement, and support. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Susanna, for this wonderful presentation and for guiding us through how you created this framework. And, um, you know, the, the first discoveries um, it led to already, uh, which, you know, was a really beautiful, um, you know, presentation and explanation. So uh, thank you very much for that. And, um, you know, I, I think it's so fascinating where I was really fascinated to read your work. Um, we had a previous speaker here um, that talked about uh, gene expression and how uh, she compared different um, cell types, uh, the same cell types, um, and she found out and she looked at specific regions um, during development um, and there was a pretty high variability how basically cells uh, used um, gene expression to come basically to a similar result. And now you show um, this really, you know, very thorough work showing that um, the same cell types have 
at least for the structures um, you looked at, um, have a very similar structure. So it's so this gives really this together gives really a really interesting insight and deep insight that apparently at the gene expression level, especially during development, there is a high variability, but it ends basically at the structure. Would you agree with that? Or maybe I'm not up to date. No, I think that's okay. That's a good place to start. Yeah. Um, these cells are all very similar to each other. So their gene expression, there will still be variations from cell to cell, but how deep you have to go to find those changes, those differences, and how that connects to the organization is actually one of the research questions we want to continue with. So a previous paper at the Institute where we were trying to sort of get at that is we we actually created measurements to quantify the organization of sarcomeres and differentiated cardiomyocytes um, versus some of the core sort of gene expression markers of sarcomerogenesis, because we were trying to sort of look at what is the connection between patterns of gene expression and, and quantitative cell organization. And the really cool thing from that study was that actually those two are not that correlated on a cell-by-cell -cell basis. So your your organization is not the way I like to think about it is the organization of the cell is not entirely defined by the parts that are in the cell. You still have to arrange them in a particular way. So the genes, you know, are sort of the parts list and the organization is how you arrange all those parts. Now, if you're only given and you imagine building a house, if you're only given a certain set of parts, most likely you're going to build houses that look similar to each other than if you were given completely different parts. Right. Um, but not every single house, unless you were, building it to the exact same plan would look identical, right? And so the question of how different versus identical you are, how variable you are, is something that depends on at what scale do you look, which is why those numbers matter so much, right? So you're completely right. I think there's a lot of variation cell to cell, especially in a developing organism, you know, between cell types. Within one cell type, which is sort of what we're doing, there's still quite a bit of variation, you know, say in shape, but that's sort of misleading. There's lots of variation in shape, and yet there's very little variation in the in the wiring within that shape. So um, now if we took these cells and differentiated them, I think, which is something we're doing, you know, this question of how closely linked is the parts list and the arrangement can really be explored quantitatively. And we're really excited about that. I don't know if that helps you, Catalina, but I think that's, yeah. that's where that's going. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that will be really interesting to see um, how you know, how it will play out when they are differentiated. And then, of course, um, you alluded a little bit to it. First, we have to know what happens in their basically regular normal setting and then what happens in disease mm -hmm. state. And, and this will give us, I think, a lot of more insight into, you know, disease, different disease states and, and how they they reflect basically in the cell, which will be really interesting. Did you already start um, working on that or, um, yeah? Yeah, we, um, we have not started on say a disease model, but we are using differentiation, which is something our stem cells do very well as a way of asking that question. And so we are differentiating our stem cells along the mesodermal lineage. Um, originally towards cardiomyocytes, now also towards endothelial cells. But what's really cool is that we've sort of stopped at the very first step, which is when these epithelial-like cells undergo a transition to become more mesenchymal and migratory. And so it turns out that we can actually study a transition that's also very 
commonly um, studied in developmental biology and in cancer biology, which is the EMT, the epithelial to mesenchymal transition. And for us, it's a model system. Our HIPSCs are not, you know, true, you know, we haven't differentiated them into epithelia, but they're epithelial-like, and they go through this transition with a lot of the same changes in the molecular markers that people would expect. And so now this is actually where we're working up how do we measure organization? How do we measure changes in organization? How do we measure the molecular identity, the you know all the parts list and all of the steps along this process? How do we measure behavior? Right? How do we actually say whether a cell is moving and how it's moving compared to if it's not? And how do we measure the impact of the environment? And so that is sort of what we're doing as our next step is to try to understand if you have normal cells, and in our case, normal would be say state one, you know, epithelial-like, and say abnormal state is state two. In our case, it's not abnormal. Mesenchymal cells are not abnormal. They're just a different state. How do you how do cells switch? How do they integrate all of these different aspects of how they behave to permit them to change state? And I guess I would say that the field, the, the cell biology field and the biology field in general, is very focused on the changes in the molecules, the molecular identity makeup, because we have really good methods to quantify that and to measure that and to study that. But what we don't have is the equivalent amount of tools to, to study organization. And so we hope to fill, we hope to help others also, all of us fill that gap and then really ask that question of how closely these things are intertwined. Yeah, that sounds uh, uh, like a very exciting um, future that we for sure will follow. I have two more questions and then I will pass it along to Dr. Shah and Aaron and everyone else that wants to ask questions. Um, so the, the other thing that's probably like a future work, you also maybe, maybe it's so early to work on models to make basically predictions. Um, let's say this happens to a cell this is the most likely uh, how it will be reflected in the structure of the cell or as um, a specific you know stress factor disease do you, or maybe a drug to test that maybe one day you don't need necessarily to always test it uh, on cells that you will have one day a pretty good predictive model and why I'm asking this is that you know it would just uh, save so much money <laughs> and, and infrastructure maybe other you know poor labs and countries could could use those models yeah I think I think there's sort of two parts that I want to respond to in that question so so one is we also care about prediction. We care about understanding those predictions. So we don't want to just, you know, willy nilly make predictions, but really understand them. That's what the statistics and these measurements are for is that so that once we have predictions, we can really measure how good they are and, and what they mean. But we definitely care about about, you know, also contributing our data towards learning how to make these sorts of predictions. We have to start small, right? We have to say, okay, you know, can we predict um, from a set of images, you know, uh, what say a future step will be um, if we have time-lapse images, for example. And, and we are working on methods to do that. Um, and the, the cool thing is that we want to, you know, we use machine learning types of, of approaches to do that. Um, we want to not just be able to do the prediction. We want to try to understand what these machine learning models that are generated end up seeing. So we want to try to learn how to decode sort of the the um, that black box that happens in those predictions. I think that's really important because I think I was at some meetings where there were a lot of physicians and and you know the challenge of using say machine learning predictions 
is always they don't trust the black box. So if you can start to understand what the black box is seeing, I think you can also really make an impact. So so that we we are interested in and we have research directions at the Institute that relate to this. But the, the bigger picture, Katerina, when you're saying where would this lead, one of the reasons we chose to work in stem cells is that, you know, if you really extrapolate now and dream big and maybe it's not five years, maybe it's more, right? These HIPSCs, these cells, what they are is they're, you take a person and you take some skin cells from them and you reprogram those cells into HIPSCs. So you could imagine that if you know what HIPSCs are supposed to do, or if you then differentiate them into other cell types and you know how to access those and analyze them, you would just take a patient and you would take their cells and you make stem cells from them. And then you would do all of the various things that we and others in the community are, are um, developing um, to then hopefully be able to assess, you know, what might be wrong with that patient. So that sort of goal eventually to take the knowledge of basic biology and the understanding of cells and be able to apply that, you know, in many different ways, including in human health, are, is, is, has always been there from the beginning of the design of which model system we picked. Yeah, that's wonderful, and um, that that is really interesting. Uh, I think it will have so many applications in the future that um, you know, very futuristic ones, but um, that um, that will have quite quite extensive implications for you know health and treatment, and maybe also for prevention. <laughs> Um, you know, yes. preventive treatments, which I think will become very important. And uh, the the other last question is, um, you know, the extracellular matrix. I know you're working in in cell cultures, basically, and um, uh, iPSCs. But um, are you considering at some point to basically evolve to also being able to analyze the extracellular matrix, like? what's a, a healthy one in a specific um, cell type and, and what also could trigger signals there in a structure uh, to a non-healthy state, you know, that, that we learn more about that. Yeah, I think the environment, which we define as, say, the exocellular matrix, but also which cells are next to the cells, and you know what type of stiffness you know the environment has and everything else is really important and is one of our sort of things we want to understand how the cells interact with so we we're starting not necessarily by looking at what is the makeup of the ecm that gets secreted or that we place or what is the signaling that happens you know but we are considering the fact for example that we can plate ourselves on different substrates which means that the cells are attached to the surface you know with different you know sort of strength and therefore responding to the stiffness of the surface differently, and also what we can add on top of our cells. So these HIPSCs, um, especially as you differentiate them, are also known to form organoids, you know, depending on how you play around with the environment. Um, and so in a forward-thinking in a forward-thinking way, as we're studying that early EMT in our cells, we are also investigating how our cells change, how they do EMT based on what that environment is that we give them. So it's early days for that, Katerina. It's not as close as saying now we can look at what that makeup is and how it changes, but but we are definitely considering how to bring environment in to all of this. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I would like to hand over the microphone to Dr. Shah and then Aaron. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Alan, for your wonderful talk. And my question based upon your slides under the slides that you just mentioned about the framework to 
quantify different aspects of the intercellular reorganization. You mentioned about the cells in the early mitosis, which you mentioned about the individual versus the pairs. And my question from you is considering some uh, special properties, for example, in a cancer cell, how you can uh, just define or find the correlation between the, for example, immune evasion or some other aspects like the resistance to apoptosis or angiogenesis based upon your result. Is there any correlation, by the way, or not? Yeah, I don't think we can answer that with our particular data set um, in our cells. Um, we looked at mitotic cells because, of course, there's a lot of change in, in organization. And the nice thing is we looked at early stages of mitosis so that we could sort of see the sequential. We looked at the interface in two early stages of mitosis so that to see sequential reorganization. What that allowed us to do, though, um, is think about how this framework extends to other conditions, right? So you could say if we could pick the cells that are pre-apoptotic, we can't in our cells at the moment, but you could imagine in some other system that you, you know, have a good way to separate those out or to look at those. And you could say, okay, let's take all the pre-apoptotic cells and all the normal cells and um, now compare the organization. You know, is there something that's a clear, um, you know, noticeable trait that changes in that combination of conditions? Is it the location or is it the variation or is it the interactions? And that, that's what this is setting up is sort of, here's a recipe for you guys, for others to tie this out in many different contexts. We were sort of focused on demonstrating what this framework can even do in the context of the particular population that is the data set for this paper, but we are now extending it to other, other conditions. And based upon whatever you said in the transitional, for example, a stage or in that part of the body, or if we want to consider something like a mucus production or foam production, do you have any further information that you can share with us? Uh, not, not, not really. I'm not an expert in, in those particular um, cellular systems. The, the stem cells w would not be in the context of the immune system. There is an Allen Institute for Immunology. That's one of our um, scientific units. And they're studying very much in very high data manner, sort of the, the ways that the immune system changes also in individual people and in people with various diseases. So you could, you could look at what they're doing um, in a way to really see what we at the Institute are doing. Um, and of course, we imagine that one could merge forces and study the organization of different immune cells as well. It's a bit of a different system because those cells are non-adherent. Um, so we wouldn't have all the, the methods worked up, but the concepts would hold. And I'm assuming you don't have any further data about the mutation and those kind of toxin production, right? No, no, not, not, for, not at the moment. Okay, thank you so much. I'm passing the mic to the next person. Uh, hi, thanks for this great talk. It was really interesting. Uh, my ears perked up when you mentioned spherical harmonics because that's uh -huh. what I did uh, my th uh, thesis on in college. So I was wondering, but that was on particle physics. Uh, so I was wondering, is the idea that the various spherical harmonics all map to different ones of the eight dimensions you identified, like height maps to like the anti-symmetric Z, <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> harmonic. Aaron, I love this question. You're making me smile. 
it was when we started. So we started with doing the spheric harmonic approach just on the nuclei in our movies, in our time lapse. And when we were sort of looking at what those modes were, I was hopeful, like you, that actually maybe those uh, modes actually map very to very particular coefficients, right? Um, they can, but since our goal is not to have a perfect mapping that relates to the spherical harmonics themselves and more a descriptor in general of the, the shape variation, doing the PCA on those coefficients gives you a better result than trying to hunt for the particular coefficients that might match that particular shape mode. But, but when we started, I was thinking exactly the same way. Uh, very cool. Since there isn't anyone else on stage, would it be okay if I asked another question? Yes, sure. Please go ahead. So, uh, yes, you mentioned about explainability in machine learning uh, for this. That's actually an area I'm currently uh, researching in. So I was very curious, what sort of problem are you trying to solve with that you're so that you're encountering and trying to solve in terms of explainability within your machine learning models. So the the way that we're using the machine learning at the moment is that you know we really want to understand what is the information content um, within the cells, both the cell shape and then the inside the internal organization. And so we have um, published uh, a couple of studies, one one in particular where we used um, variational autoencoders to try to, you know, take in a lot of these images and recreate out, uh, you know, by, by, you know, decoding through the latent space in these models, um, a prediction, say, of where a location of certain structures is or structures relative to each other and such. And, and the, the way that that fits into our research is really that if we want to be able to understand complex cell shapes and organization, what we first need is, you know, different ways of representing those. So, so there's sort of different, you know, shape representations. In this case, we did spherical harmonics. In other cases, we're, we're working, you know, tying out um, level sets or point clouds. Um, and then we need to figure out how to do dimensionality reduction. And in the case of the, um, you know, the paper here, the dimensionality reduction we did was very straightforward PCA. But in the case of other things we're doing at the Institute, there's no reason that the cell requires, you know, principal orthogonal axes of variation to explain its information. It may be that, um, you know, these sorts of, um, you know, auto-generated auto-encoder models and the latent space they generate in a much more efficient way, you know, recapitulate and contain that information um, that the cell cares about. And so when I say decoding, um, you know, that black box, I'm referring to if we had a really good, you know, encoder and decoder, encoding and decoding um, of, say, a cell shape or an internal organization location of a structure in the cell that is very, very, um, uh, very successful right? from what you start to what you recreate. And yet it has, you know, more or less complexity within that latent space that we could try to get at and decode what it is that is being learned um, by exploring um, how that latent space changes in the context of many different parameters. So that's our beginnings to go at that. I'm sure it's not nearly as um you know, as, as far along as it should be <laughs> and more things that you're working on. But, but I think that um, we hope that we don't just depend on the ability to make a reasonable prediction, but that we then take that apart to understand exactly what it is that the model learned. Why are, you know, if we say constrain the dimensionality of that latent space, why would certain number of dimensions, you know, work better than others? What is it that they're actually, um, you know, combining as far as the aspects of shape or organization, can we learn what the cell cares about? So 
I don't know if that helped you or not, but that's where we're sort of going. I'm trying to keep the language also not completely technical <laughs> here. So. Cool. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, that is a, that's certainly an ongoing problem in machine learning is like, what do the dimensions that you found actually mean? Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. I remembered that we had, um, and thank you for those questions and the answers, Aaron. Oh, there you are back. <laughs> they were really interesting. And I just remembered that we had a guest speaker here beginning of last year where Dr. Cheng, um, I believe she was at Caltech, but they have a startup company now um, that they use molecular orbital based machine learning and why they did that was exactly for that reason to basically have a machine learning system that can explain to you exactly why they come to which conclusion so I also have the paper if anyone is interested um, to follow up Based on this discussion, I'll, I'll send it to you. It was a really interesting talk. Also, I shared it in the chat. Um, the, and I have the slides also somewhere. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I know we went already over an hour, Susanna. So I wanted to, you know, let you go back to your busy life and work. Um, and, um, but this was, uh, really a wonderful presentation and discussion and um, we're really thankful for you taking the time to come here and um, uh, share your knowledge with us and your work with us and um, uh, also the discussion was really interesting giving us a lot of future um, you know insights what will happen in the future so um, yeah, thank you so much for doing the work you're doing and for sharing it with us. Uh, we really appreciate thank, it. Thank you, Catalina and everyone. It was a really great opportunity to have a, a nice chat. Um, the format actually worked very well. So thank you so much for um, inviting me. And um, I look forward to some of you guys checking out our website and maybe thinking about, you know, exploring what, what we have that might be useful for your work or just for your learning. Um, so thank you so much, Catalina. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I encourage everyone to check it out and follow. There's a newsletter you can sign up for and follow the work. It will for sure be a very exciting um, future studies to to read. So we are all curious <laughs> to, <laughs> to the future. So um, yeah, and thank you everyone for coming, asking questions, sharing this with us, the question with me. And um, yeah, I hope to hear you all back soon. And um, if you like discussions like this, um, just follow us. And the next um, uh, talk will be with Dr. Bose and um, the effects of pharmaceuticals on the aquatic ecosystem. So it will be a very different topic, but I think it will be also interesting. So, uh, and again, Thank you so much, Susanna. We wish you all the luck and all the best for the future. And uh, I hope we hear you one day, maybe again. Thank you. Yes, I look forward to crossing paths. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.